Hi everybody and welcome to the Junction Church Podcast. We pray that this message inspires and encourages you. If you would like to find out any more information about us, then please visit our website at www.thejunctionchurch.com. Thank you for listening. And that's a little bit to do with so maybe the premise of what our friend series is all about. It's it's sort of understanding, you know, what the importance of friendship is. You know, we all understand friends are important, but kind of understand looking and exploring just where it sort of fits in, how uh, the the importance of it as sort of dictated, as, as described, as sort of uh, taught to us in, in, in the Bible and by God, how, how important these, uh, these relationships that we surround our lives with, that they aren't, they aren't just something to pass the time, but they are of so much more significance than that. that um, the Bible talks, in, it's, it's, it's sprinkled throughout the Bible, the importance of friendships, of, of relationships, uh, and how relationships have this, they have this sort of multiplying effect. You know, there are certain things that, you know, you can do on your own, and you can do with another person, and Often, like, it's more than just, it's not just addition. It's not like I can do twice as much with two people. It's like you are, it is multiplied. Sometimes uh, there's just stuff you cannot do on your own. There's stuff you cannot uh, accomplish, achieve, even get close to. But with another person, with someone around your life, you can reach that target. You can, you can meet that goal. Uh, and it's also just a lot more fun. Uh, <laughs> I want to read to you from uh, Ecclesiastes 4, uh, verse 9. Uh, two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. You see, friendship is the basis by which we can do extraordinary things for each other. You know, it, it, to surpass our own sort of capacity. You know, with another person, another person will amplify you. You know, you know what it's like when you're, you go into a room with your friends, you're at a, maybe at a party, at a gathering, the real you comes out. You know, like you, you, in the fullness of you, you just feel at ease to, to let your personality fly. And uh, whether you be extrovert or introvert, you can just be yourself, you know, and it, and it amplifies. The people around you have a, an amplifying effect to bring out the better parts of your uh, personality, of your character, of your nature. Uh, it also, another person has the ability to recharge another. You know, it, it, whether at the end of the day, you know, you, your life might be one in which you're like, of yourself, you just are constantly giving. Every sort of interaction you have, just it's spending that bit of yourself. And yet you can sit down at the end of a week with a friend and enjoy a coffee and just chat about the week. Not, not even necessarily moan or anything. Just, just sort of speak through what happened. I, I, yeah, I don't mean like, oh, yeah, it's great to moan at your friends. It's like, you know, it's, it's, you can just chat and, and, and you leave recharged. You leave just with an energy, energized yeah, an energy that you didn't have when you came and that you couldn't get at home on the settee in front of Netflix. But, but you get when you interact with another person. And it has, it has the effect of elevating 
one another. You know, when you have a person and you, you know, those people that you can, those very precious people that you can share your dreams with, that you can talk about just the, the things that, that sit heavy on your heart, that, that, that just rest on the inside. And, and you can talk to that person and you can share with them your doubts and your, your fears that like it might not, you can't see necessarily how it come about, but, but another person can elevate you. They can, they can encourage you. They can say, yeah, I believe you can do that. Yeah, I can see you doing that. You should have been doing that all your life. And they, they elevate you and you can elevate one another. Friendship is just so much more than just one plus one. It's more than one times one. It's more than you could ever just sort of do by maths. It's, it's not a numerical equation. It's, it's something so much more uh, profound. You know, when you, are, when you are with another person, you, you bring out, whether you're with a friend, you bring out the better parts of one another. You, you bring out the best in one another. Yeah. I once had a friend. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I went all the way through school. I was in, it was in... Uh, primary school and secondary school and then I saw him uh, throughout uni and, and he was enormous, like he was so tall, he was like the tallest person, he always seemed like the tallest person because it didn't matter what age we were at, my eyes were never above his sort of nipples, <laughs> <laughs> armpits if that's you know better, uh, but like essentially I was always like sort of head to chest size, he was always like that much larger than me, just always, and uh, he was my friend, he was called Keith, and uh, strong name, Keith, and uh, I, I don't know what it is, I seem to sort of be uh, attracted into these friendships that have like sort of me be the little and someone else be the large, uh, I don't know what it is, maybe there's a, something that needs dealt with, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's my shortness, yeah, I'm definitely the short one, that's why it's good having kids, but I do think they'll probably get taller than me, uh, but uh, so we, me and Keith, uh, we did all, we went, he was just one of my best friends. Just we uh, did so much through life. And I, I remember this one time uh, where we went uh, camping. There was a bunch of us went camping and it was me and Keith that were there. And we kind of were sort of leading the camp. And uh, Keith was uh, tremendously gifted at knots. You know, like you have, you have, he was our knots guy. You might have your like your, uh, you might have your fire juggler guy or your sword eating guy. He was our knots guy. Uh, that's that's who he was, and, and he did a lot more than knots, but he was really good at knots. And uh, whenever we needed a knot done, he was our guy. And uh, we decided we were going to build this death slide. Now, when you tell your parents, you say it's a rope slide, but when you're bragging to your friends, it's a death slide. Uh, and, and we built this death slide, and uh, it, was, it was really long. It was this real high angle, very aggressive, and, uh, and tight. Like, that's the trick to it. There's, there's no point having slack within it. It needs to be tight, particularly if you're going high angle. Uh, and uh, we, we built this thing, and uh, it was tremendous. But, but I sort of stepped up because... He was the knots guy, and I was the reckless disregard for his own well-being guy. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if much has changed. Uh, but, so that was my role. I was the guy. I was the test pilot. I loved doing that sort of stuff. And so Keith had uh, he'd done all the knots, and we sort of helped him tighten it up. And he built this sort of figure of, figure of eight sort of sling that we could use as the trolley for going down. And uh, I got myself. I was up. I was up. I wonder if this is going to work. I was up in the tree, and I'm like 20 feet, 20 feet. I was wondering if this would reverb, but it's not too bad. And I was 20 feet up, and I'm looking down. And to be honest, when you're like 14 years old, you live for the opportunities when people can go, whoa, that's mental. That is mental. 
he's going to kill himself. Like, that's, that is it. Like, that's just the best thing ever. And, and I was, I, I'm not like one, particularly in that circumstance, to do it like sort of half-heartedly. I want this thing to be the fastest, most death-defying stunt so that everyone afterwards can go, whoa, you're mental. But I got there. I was up on my tree, 20 feet up. And I went for it, and I, I put it on, and I went for it, and I, there was no sort of like, I didn't go for the testing it thing. <laughs> like, that's kind of taking it easy. No, 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 no. You don't go fast by testing it. I was like, like that. I got myself right up there like that. I'll go back a second. See, I thought, I thought that I was up there, and I was secure because Keith had done all of these knots. I had this figure of eight, and it was solid as a rock. What I didn't know was that one of my uh, younger brothers was at the camp, and he wanted to prove himself. He was like, I'm going to be one of the top guys here. I'm going to prove myself to be worthy. And so he had, without any of us knowing, built his own figure of eight knot. And he had left it in the same tent as Keith had left his, and, and I didn't know that there were two figure of eight knots. So I just picked up the one that was conveniently at the front of the tent, but my brother Joseph, for all of his qualities, is not a knots guy. <laughs> knots guy is not Joe. And so I was up there. I was up in the tree, ready to go, ready to show everyone how brave I was. And I put it on, and I went, and it instantly snapped. And I instantly <laughs> fell out of this tree. Now... You guys are all probably thinking, this is the moment in the story where, like, the angels turned up. And, like, they, they picked me up in the sky and laid me down. And, and we all just gave praise and were in awe and wonder. We waved flags and fell on the ground laughing. That did not happen. What happened was I fell out of that tree with all of the finesse of a cowpat. And, and I smacked on the ground. You see... I was, and I was so winded. I, I remember, it felt like eternity, but I don't want to put any exaggeration into this story. Uh, and so I was like, <laughs> I like, for, honestly, for like five minutes, I could not take a breath. I was like, oh, it was the worst. Like I thought I was going to die. It was just terrible. I said, no exaggeration. Uh, and like after like five minutes, I just uh, managed to take a breath. And, and for like years afterwards, and I'm really not kidding about this, years afterwards, when it would get cold, I would get cold. I would get this dull pain behind my lungs. And I would remember the time I fell out of the tree. It was like really, it was really horrible, actually. It's a terrible experience, uh, landing flat on that mud and the, and the roots from the massive tree that I'd just been in. See, you know, we can build things together. You know, groups of people can build great things together. You know, that's, it's, it's, it's possible. You can build great things when you get together, when you get into community and build something. Great things can be accomplished. But there's a difference between being kind of pleased with your results and trusting your life with them. There's a difference between that. But, and, and I think... There's like, that's kind of some, that's some sort of definition of like kind of what friendship is. Like, you know, it's sort of, 
would you trust your life in that situation? I don't mean in like some physical sense. I don't mean like uh, in terms of like competency. I don't mean like who do you trust to fix your car or anything like that. I mean like who do you trust with like the deep and intimate parts of your life, with the the bits that you have vulnerability in, the, the bits that really sort of you feel uh, delicate about, the details that are delicate upon the inside. Would you trust them? Who do you trust them to? You maybe achieve great things in a group. And we have, like, we have these, this wide ring of people that we know, but within that is a much smaller circle of those who we trust. Mm-hmm. Amen? That's, that's right. We all have this, this slightly, this, this much smaller circle of those who we trust. And, and when I talked of that uh, original verse about two being better than one, that is not a verse that is, that is not a statement. Uh, that's not a statement that, that promotes the idea of numerical support superiority that's it's not about numbers it's about the importance it highlights the importance of having meaningful relationships of having relationships where you can trust and you can have somebody that you believe in and and can believe in you it's 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 someone that you can you know fight off an enemy with that you can you can be warm with that you know it's, it's it's not just numbers it's something about a meaningful and deep relationship and and how does how does a relationship become meaningful? How does it become? I, I think if we're really, really, really honest with ourselves, like in our humanity, and our humanity is pretty simple, like we as individuals put kind of prerequisites upon our friends. We, we sort of subconsciously, but we would impose these sort of standards upon the people around us. And, and these are usually sort of derived from our own sort of personal value system. It's something that just you've kind of grown with or, or it's just become apparent to you. But we sort of create this sort of template from the principles that sort of sit within us and we, and we kind of match them to people. We, we sort of take those things and, and try to find those who sort of fit within that template. And I mean this not in any sort of like, you're not thinking about, right, who fits into the template. I have my 10-point plan, I have to tick them off. And it's like it's really sort of internal. It's that subconscious. It's, it's, it's ultimately, it's the, the mechanism by which internally we judge whether somebody is worthy or unworthy of our affection it sounds like pretty mechanical there but but i think there's there's a truth to it that that we do put these standards we impose these standards and and there sometimes i think the really the only times we are even aware of them are when we get frustrated you know you have a friendship and you and you get frustrated with it and why is that it's because they're there's a certain level of expectation that just they aren't meeting. And they maybe never even realized that expectation was placed upon them. And you never even possibly realized that you were placing it upon them until it gets sort of tense. And, and you begin to sort of get frustrated that the expectation, the, the template isn't being fulfilled. The standard isn't being upkept. And see, this, this dilemma, this, this sort of way of interaction is something that all humanity has, has wrestled with. It's, it's a part of the human condition. And there was a time where this, that kind of dilemma was distilled down into a very simple question that was posed to Jesus. And I want to really go through that uh, for the rest of the message, because I think there's something incredibly profound in what Jesus says. So if you turn with me to Luke 10, we'll start at verse 25. I'm going to kind of stop throughout this because 
I really want us to grasp what Jesus is saying. So I'll, I'll, I'll start off. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your strength and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, the lawyer is, is described as he's, he's testing Jesus, that he's, he's justifying and kind of qualifying Jesus' remarks. And he's sort of in his wording, he's, he's really looking for what are the extents to which my kindness must run? You know, how far must my kindness, you know, who is, who is my neighbor? You know, if, if you've said that, or, or, the, or the, the command says, I must love my neighbor as myself, then presumably everyone who isn't my neighbor I don't need to love as myself. So who is, who is my neighbor? You know, he wants to know the boundaries of that command because not everyone is going to be loved as himself. It's just the ones who are his neighbor. Uh, it's, it's what's the jurisdiction of this command. You know, if I were to love, my, uh, love someone as themselves, then surely there are people that I shouldn't have to love as myself. You know, what are, what's the jurisdiction of this command? What's the, what's the limits to it? And, and it sounds, when I read it, I feel as if, because he's a lawyer, you see, he's trying to find a bit of a loophole. He's trying to find, he's trying to say, well, who qualifies? Who meets the standard? And who can I disqualify? And who would I find unworthy? And so in response, Jesus shares this parable with, with the lawyer. And you have to understand that, the parables that Jesus told are just layered, nuanced sort of narratives. They, they're, they're, very, they're, they're much more sort of Godfather 2 than Alvin and the Chipmunks. You know, they're, they're, there's something very, there's, there's just a depth to it that we often, because even if you've been in church or haven't been in church, we have heard many of these stories and we sweep over them. And this morning, uh, Ke- uh, Pastor Kevin went through uh, the parable of the lost sheep and honestly, it was like he turned it on its head. It was like as if he was reading a different Bible from the rest of us because it was so profound and so the inverse of how we often read it. And I think that comes down to the fact that we often approach these parables with sort of, uh, we sort of already kind of decided what it's about and sometimes sort of skip over the details. And so the characters, the setting and the narrative all have a very specific purpose that is to elicit a response, to provoke a reaction from the audience so that they would truly grasp the principle that he's trying to, uh, trying to teach them. So I'll continue. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, first thing to note, Jerusalem to Jericho is about, depending on where you look, but it's roughly 20 miles. Uh, So it's about a day's walk, just under a day's walk. Now, the other thing is that Jerusalem is on high ground, and Jericho is on low ground. And as the scripture says, he, he went down to Jericho. And Jericho had a reputation. You know, Jerusalem was the capital, whereas Jericho had this sort of slightly unruly 
reputation. It was kind of the dodgy bit of town. And, uh, and, and even the fact that he's traveling downwards just creates this sense of him sort of uh, descending into corruption. You know? And the other thing is that this, this road, this, this route, was notoriously dangerous. It was uh, a wilderness, uh, but it had all of these... Uh, like mount, it was quite mountainous, and there would be lots of caves, and it was the perfect sort of place for outlaws to lay in wait for unwitting travellers and, and and ransack them, and and, and 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 basically take their stuff, rob them. Uh, and it was so notorious that it was given it was given the nickname the Way of Blood, which is pretty scary. And uh, so it was notorious. And everyone hearing this story would know that it was a dangerous path to take. And the other thing is that the traveler, when, he is, uh, when the, uh, the thieves set upon him and, and ransack him, they, they leave him as if he were for dead, which means he's now completely vulnerable. He is, he is left. He is just broken, he is beaten, he is naked, he is senseless, he is absolutely at the mercy of the, of the, of the landscape. You know, he is, he is now a goner, he will die shortly if somebody does not come and rescue him. If someone does not intervene, he is gone. And, you know, it's within this scene that, that Jesus is saying, well, look, I'm going to illustrate for you who your neighbor is. You know, in a place of vulnerability, in a place of brokenness, in a place where you cannot help yourself, let me demonstrate for you who your neighbor is. If you imagine you are the stricken traveler, imagine you are them, let me show you who I regard as a neighbor. And based on that, that is the kind of person that you will love unequivocally to fulfill the command and receive eternal life. So let's go to contestant number one. Now, by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, once again, this is not some sort of Englishman-Irishman contrivance. You know, the, there's a, he's not just picking names out of a hat here. Uh, Jericho was a priestly city, which means it had been basically set apart for those uh, religious men who just, their lives were basically devoted to serving God. And so it was not uncommon that you would have a priest traveling along this road. He would be, uh, maybe during the week, he'd be serving in the temple in Jerusalem. And then at the end of the week, he would return to Jericho. So it was not uncommon that you would see a priest walking along this route. Uh, It is also important to know that, like, when he would have, said a priest, that, that, that would have implied a, a certain amount of uh, virtuousness, of, of moral upstanding. You know, he's communicating. This is, if you were in this situation, if you were desperate for someone to intervene, man, a priest on the surface would be a pretty awesome person to walk by. That's exactly the kind of person you would expect, based on reputation, that you would want passing by after you'd been beaten up. But the priest doesn't help him. It says that he saw him and he passed by on the other side. And, and when it says passed by on the side, it doesn't even mean passed on the other side of the road like some of us do when we're accosted by Oxfam people. Uh, it's, 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 it's like he passed on the other side of the ravine. Like he took a massive detour 
so that he would not be anywhere near this guy who was on the ground, who was beaten up. And, and there's two reasons why the priest would have likely done this. One is he, being a frequent flyer, he would have been acutely aware of like the peril that he was in. He would have understood that this is a dangerous place and this could be a trap. And if I go over there, I could be set upon. I've got to think about myself. The other reason is he was a priest. He was a holy man and For him to go there, if he went over and this guy was dead or he was about, just about to die and he was sort of in contact with a a dead person, then then he would be ceremonially uh, defiled, which would have meant that like he would have had to, when he went back, he would have been uh, unclean. He would not be able to have uh, continued with his, uh, the the works that he was supposed to do is his sort of service. So he would probably have to sit out. It'd be like he'd be subbed out and have to sit on the bench and kind of do a certain amount of like cleansing stuff to, it would basically just, it would be really bad for his career in in a sense. And, and he, he, he was like, when it came down to it, he acted in sort of a sense of self-preservation. When it came down to it, he placed his own interests above that of this other person, this stranger. In fact, he walked so far around, took this complete long cut, so that like, he could maintain this pretense, oh, I never saw him. I never saw him. I, 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 walked, I took the other way. I took the, the right at the ravine. I, I, didn't, I didn't see the guy. How many times, when we're really honest, I'm not looking for a show of hands or anything like that, but do we kind of sometimes pretend we haven't seen stuff? That we... We pretend that we haven't seen because we just don't want to get involved. It's maybe we don't think it's our problem, and so we take the long way around. We, we take a detour so that our paths don't cross. That's, it's that conflict of, like our, of our charity, the charity and generosity within us that sort of we quell, that we hold back on it, because... There's, whenever you sort of, whenever you approach a situation like that, there's an expense. There's a sacrifice involved in it. And in this instance, the the priest put his own interests first. Now on to contestant number two. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. Now... The Levite is, is very much like the priest. He, same circumstances. And once again, he would have been held in high regard uh, and would have been a common sight along that route. But unlike the priest, he didn't simply see this guy and go the other way. It actually says he, he came and looked. So he actually, that whatever, whatever the impulse within him was to kind of flee the situation, to flee the spot... He actually overcame that. He overcame that and came close. He came over to where this guy was lying there bleeding out. And he looks at him and he realizes this guy's not dead, but he is pretty close to it. And I think he looked at this guy and he would have seen that he needed more than just a hand up. He needed more than just a shoulder to lean on. This guy needed serious help because... He was done for. He was in a bad state. And he was going to need cared for, looked for. It was going to involve a complete detour. It was going to involve a complete change of plans, a hit to the schedule. It was going to involve serious inconvenience. Serious inconvenience. And it was at that moment. And this is sort of the the disillusionment of 
of the Levi. In that, in that moment, light, the light, the righteousness within him had brought him over to there. But at the crucial moment, just that unwillingness to be inconvenienced, that unwillingness to put himself out, that, that just the dark, whatever light had led him there, the dark within the core, the, the wickedness within the core just held him back from being inconvenienced. I just, I can't be inconvenienced. And I think, I mean, we, once again, I think that's something we can all relate to. I think there's times, think of it like in a conversation, you're, you're talking with someone. We have these sort of platitudes that we use of, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing really well. And, and they're just like, they're, they're greetings more than actual honest statements. And there are times where we recognize that we could ask a follow-up question, where we could ask something because we have a sense that something isn't right. We, we have came and looked. We've come a little closer and we've looked. But sometimes the thought of opening Pandora's box, sometimes the idea of opening up and allowing the mess to get onto us, to get involved in whatever the problem is, to sit in for the next hour and listen to whatever, it's a bit inconvenient. And so we decide to step back and we say, good, I'm glad you're all right. We just continue with our day. It's, it's, it's so easy because just like self-preservation is a, is a powerful motive, convenience is also something that drives us so often and it's so subtle it just it's subtle just from that point where you rein yourself back rein so ah, i don't want to get involved i can tell something's up here i'm not going to get involved okay let's go to our final contestant but a certain samaritan as he journeyed came where he was now the samaritan is very different from the priest and the levite the Samar- uh, the priest and levite would have been held in high regard Particularly to the Jewish audience that Jesus was uh, recounting this story to, to put it really simply, Samaritans were hated. Just they were despised. They were, they were the, the epitomized uh, threat and, you know, sort of feeling sort of like your security is at risk. They, they were detested by the, the, the Jews and, and they were you know, at loggerheads, they were not, there was not a, uh, a familiar or, or pleasant relationship between these people. So the idea that a Samaritan of all people could possibly be your neighbor would have been pretty unthinkable. It would have been uh, a very, it would have been severely controversial. It would have been something that would have really shook his audience. I will continue. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. And then Jesus asked, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Now, this is where it gets interesting because it's at this point that Jesus is putting the lawyer in a pretty awkward position. You see, the lawyer was not, he wasn't like an ambulance chaser or something like that. He was, he was like a religious lawyer. He, was, he would have, so, so priests and Levites would have been like colleagues of his. They would have been people that he interacted with on a daily basis. And so it was a pretty unpalatable option for him to be saying over a Levite and a priest, a Samaritan. 
You know, that would have been, made him deeply unpopular. It would have probably not been great for his career. It would have, and, and this was not just some private conversation. What Jesus said mattered. And so if, you, if Jesus got you to say something like that, that carried weight and it had consequences. And so the lawyer was like pretty uncomfortable with that. And then even more uncomfortable was the idea that if he, he understood that if he said the Samaritan, then the implication of that would mean, well, look, if a Samaritan, if a Samaritan of all people can be my neighbor, then really anybody is my neighbor. Mm-hmm. And he did not like that sort of idea. That was not why he had asked the question. He did not want to be answering for either of those reasons. And so he did what lawyers do. He, uh, he, he gave an answer that wasn't an answer or not the answer to the question that Jesus had asked. Instead of answering who in terms of like, he didn't apportion credit to any particular party. He didn't say any particular person. What he did was he characterized the behavior that had been exhibited and said that was what a neighbor was. He, he actually says, he said, he who showed mercy on him. He who showed mercy on him. See, at this point, the lawyer is kind of thinking he's, he's won the argument because he's now sort of taken what a, uh, a neighbor is, a friend is, and he said it's all about action. It's all about what they do for me. If they show me mercy, if they show me favor, then they are my neighbor. If they do those things for me, then they are my neighbor and I can love them. I can love them without question. But it gave him this sort of, this, he felt like in answering that way that it gave him this power. Like because he could now wield this command at his discretion. I don't know whether that person has showed me mercy. I don't feel as if that person has shown me favor. I don't have to consider that person a neighbor. I don't have to show them love. I can now pick and choose who I, choose, who I show kindness and love towards. And he sort of felt as if he'd, he'd captured the argument in a sense. But with all of these things, Jesus is, while they're playing checkers, Jesus is playing chess. And he kind of flips the script on him altogether. He changes the question, the direction of the question entirely. And Jesus said to him very simply, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Jesus, in saying that, he just, he tied this lawyer up in his own hypocrisy, in his own malice, in his own, you know, sort of unkind nature. He, he took this guy who was basically trying to find a way to exclusify friendship, exclusify how he would show love, and, and he's turned it on itself. He said, don't, don't ask me who your neighbor is. You be the neighbor. Yeah. You be the neighbor. You're not, you're not the traveler in this story. You're the Samaritan in this story. You're not the one looking for help. You are the one who is to go out into the world and give help. See, the lawyer wanted to know who he could exclude. But Jesus turned it around and said, no, no, no. You've got to think about this world. You've got to think about the people around you as if you are the neighbor. Who are you going to show love to? And what did the Samaritan do? The Samaritan acted indiscriminately. Indiscriminately. He acted in a way that it did not matter. He saw the person and it wasn't contingent about what relationship they had, what affinity he might have with that person. He put compassion first. He put a compassion that compelled him to act, that compelled him to reach out and touch this person. And so the question as I kind of finish up is, is how do we do likewise? 
I want to go back to the beginning of that verse, and I'll read it from a slightly different uh, chapter. Uh, in, 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 Ma- in Mark 12, verse 30, and this is Jesus speaking, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Wow. One relationship, one relationship fundamentally changes our interaction with the entire world. One relationship. You see, you can't take you can't take what Jesus said in isolation. You can't say love your neighbor as yourself, or or as we find out, love all mankind as yourself if you don't love God first. It's it can't you can't do one without the other. It's it's too great a task to love indiscriminately. It's too great a task to love all mankind without loving God first. It's 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 a bit like it's a bit like trying to eat an elephant with chopsticks. It's like theoretically it's possible. Like theoretically, theoretically, like I I can say it so maybe I could do it, but but practically it's just too vast an undertaking. It's just too vast. How can I love indiscriminately when, when at times I struggle to love the people even close to me? How, how can I do that? How, how am I supposed to have, as a person, as a flawed individual, have the capacity to love all mankind, to give up my convenience, to give up my own self-preservation, and to act in a way that is driven by compassion? How am I supposed to do that if I don't love God first? In loving God, we, we, we open ourselves up to two things that make it possible. Validation and perspective. We begin to see the world. We begin to see our neighbors. We begin to see the people around us as God sees them. As lost, as alone, and in need of a savior. And then he changes our identity. An identity that, when, when founded in him, we see ourselves as sons and we see ourselves as daughters. And in that, in that knowing of acceptance, we bypass the greatest obstacle that prevents us from loving others as we love ourselves. Insecurity. If you can enter, if you can touch someone's life and not have to be worried about, will they be grateful? Will they appreciate it? What if this? What if that? If you can go into there and know that you are doing it because you are a son and a daughter in God. If you can do that and know that it doesn't matter what appreciation I might get. What if I get a slap on the back and told a good job? If I know that I am doing this and I am stepping into that situation, I am touching that life. And I know that I am doing it because I am a son I am a daughter in the house of God, then that takes away every single impulse that holds us back, that reins us back, that prevents us from doing that which we are called to do. We are, there is a world around us that is crying out, who will remain faithful? Who will remain faithful? And if you are, and I am, and we take what we have in here out there, then we begin to activate the promise and the sacrifice that Jesus gave his life for. That we take what is inside of us, all the things that 
twist around everything that sits within, within us, our soul, our mind, and we turn it outward. We turn it outward to a world that needs to know. See, we're not even, we're not even the first Samaritan. See, that story of the Samaritan is tremendous foreshadowing of what Jesus is about to do. He's about to find mankind and it's beaten and it's broken and it is at the mercy of thieves and robbers, of wickedness. And he is about to put his life on the line. He's going to give his life to see that we are made right. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or you'd like to find out contact information or service times, then don't forget to visit our website, www.junctionchurch.com. God bless.